Welcome to The Gray Report. I'm your host, Spencer Gray. And if you're a multifamily investor, whether you're active, passive, just curious, or you've been in the industry for decades, we built this YouTube show and podcast especially for you, breaking down all the latest research reports, articles, the good, the bad, the confusing, every single week to try to help you make really informed decisions in the multifamily industry. Great reports today from CNBC, Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland, Fannie Mae, Rent.com, and also a release of the Gray Report National Rent Tracker. Matt's got some updates for us. Excited to get into it. We're getting into the new year. Merry Christmas, happy holidays. All right, let's get into the report. Welcome to The Gray Report, joined again by co-host Matt Bosnagel, Director of Communications and Marketing here at Gray Capital. Matt, how are things going? It's so remarkable how things just keep happening. Keep, the, the, the world <laughs> the never, keeps spinning and yeah. the sun keeps shining. And you know, what I thought was interesting about this week was as, as much as there are consistent economic worries, the, it, things haven't seemed to get it like sharper or more concerning, at least over the past week. Yeah, um, no, yeah. I think things are looking a little bit more opportunistic, even though yeah. I think 2023 is going to be a bumpy year, but I'm looking forward to it because I think whether there's going to be opportunities in 23 or 24, there there's going to be great opportunities at some point. And so it's worth keeping an eye on the ground. If I did do like a YouTube thumbnail audit all for all of the alarmist YouTube channels a couple weeks ago, or and maybe maybe even sooner. And honestly, they do it every day. There's disasters happening, disasters yeah. happening. But now, every so often, you're going to see, oh, this is the best buying opportunity in decades. Yeah, uh, ever. People are you know. so used and to and numb to the doomsday. Yeah, nothing's going to make you click more than the end of all. Now all of a sudden it's like, oh, somebody has a positive opinion about the future of the economy. Like a nuclear bomb of an opportunity. That's what people want (laughs) to. That's what's going to. That's what I asked the AI or generator to make a happy nuclear war. The outcomes were interesting. But it's fascinating because in the market right now, we're not, we're still far. Buyers and sellers are still far away. And part of it is adapting to the new realities yeah, economic yeah. that we're living in. Mm. And I think we have to, we're in a higher inflationary environment. I don't think it's going away. I think we're, inflation's going to be coming down, but yeah. I don't think it's going back down to 2%. And so getting out of the, the positions that we were in, in the way you would look at the market back in 20, the really the past seven or 10 years of low inflation and low cap rates and low interest rates and one trend that was ha- that's happened over the last, really since 2010 or so, is cash flows, multifamily properties returns, not necessarily total return, cash flows have been going down and down. It used to be that you wanted to see high single digit cash on cash return in the first year of operations, and but it wasn't uncommon to be getting double digit. Mm-hmm. You could get 10% cash on cash year one or year two. The cash flows historically were much stronger. You go back and look at the set the 70s and 80s was cash flows are really strong now you had to hold on to the property for a longer period of time because you didn't what wasn't there was the appreciation yeah. you know, the cap rates were much higher and so it was a much longer term play focused on cash flow which we've always been focused on cash flow but I think we're returning to that mm-hmm. and because the reality is the discount rates have changed we're in a real yield environment where bonds actually are yielding something. Mm-hmm. Past, again, years, it's like, what was the point of bonds besides some weight and balance to your portfolio? I mean, they've been performing horribly, but they also had been yielding next to zero. But now all of a sudden, get 4% out of a treasury bond. 
you can get 6% out of municipal bond. You can go to yep. high yielding corporate debt. You can B grade and you can maybe get 9%. And for a multifamily, it's a cash flows for multifamily property should track closer to that kind of corporate yeah. debt yield because you're getting more return on a multifamily investment because it's equity and you have upside in addition to that, but you want to be paid while you wait. And so the times of accepting lower cash flow, 5 6%, 4%, 3%, or no cash. I mean, there were groups in the last couple of years doing deals with no cash flow, negative oh, yeah. cash flow. It's mm-hmm. going to appreciate, we're going to sell it for a lot. And they, and that was successful for a period of time, but that's just not the world we're living in right now. And so you've got all these sellers who need to sell, and they really don't like the idea of selling at high cap rates. Yeah. But that's just the reality. And so the spread has, the gap between buyers and sellers, the bid ask spread has narrowed. It was maybe 150 basis points. Cap rates maybe at four and a half. And people were like, I'm more at high five, six cap. Now mm-hmm. brokers and sellers are closer to five, five and a half. And the market's going closer to a six. And a year ago to say to a lot of multifamily operators, cap rates are going to be close to 6% when they were at four. That was, that's hard to process. And yeah. they don't want to believe that. And a lot of them still don't want to believe that because their buddy sold a deal for a four cap yeah. a couple months ago. And now the offers come in and it's mid high fives and sixes. So it's going to be interesting when there will be a point where buyers and sellers are meeting in the middle. We're not there just yet. So uh, like that, 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 that moment will be the shortest, yeah. the shortest time period possible. <laughs> yeah. And then I think cap rates are going to yeah. go down within a range on you know, inflation. But that, yeah, that will be, there are already people that are tracking loan maturity and when things are coming due and which have floating rates and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, but this will probably reward a little bit of a minute focus on whatever your yeah. market is and, yeah, and a good relationship with brokers. And, yeah. And just, so on that topic of just different environment, different world in the last decade or two decades, and adapting your strategy. One example of that, and it's a little wonky, and at first it was hard to connect the dots, but talking about this news out of Japan this week of where Japan is changing their yield curve policies. And if you know what the yield curve is, it's basically the different rates and maturities of different bonds. Historically, the longer maturity of a bond, and we're talking about government bonds, U.S. treasuries, the longer you have your money tied up, the higher the interest rate you're going to get paid. I have your money tied. So it's like, I'm going to wait for 10 years. I should get paid a little bit higher coupon. One year, two years. You know, you were months. talking about how, so Japan seems to manually dial this in. Yeah. They put, yeah, they put Why doesn't, the and now I'm going to portray my lack of knowledge of the bond market. Why doesn't the U, if it's a U.S. bond, why doesn't well, the no, U.S. Sorry, say, no, no, not talk, I'm just talking about government bonds in general curve. But so every country issues their own treasuries. And so this is just, this is not for U.S. bonds, this is Japanese bonds. Yeah, I know. I was just comparing it like... Why doesn't the U.S. do yield curve control? Yeah, or why do, yeah, why don't they? Yeah, exactly. So that was a big debate back in 2020. People thought that the U.S. was going to start instituting yield curve control. Mm-hmm. And they do in a kind of a backdoor way of buying U.S. Treasury bonds. If they're a big buyer of Treasury bonds, they can move the yield and the price up and down. But they don't have a like set policy of we are... Like the Federal Reserve doesn't come out and say, we are trying to have the 10-year be in a range of 35 to 4% like they do in the Fed funds rate. Hmm. They set the Fed funds rate. Um, but Japan does. They say, we want the 10... In, so it's been like negative for yeah. a long period of time. We want our 10-year Treasury to be between negative 1%, negative 1% and negative... 50 basis points. And this is because they, because Japan is a very mature economy, very slow growing. So they've had deflation for decades. Okay. They've had declining population. 
They've had a very old population that's not very productive. And so they have been, it's been an experiment the past couple of decades of having, they have the loosest monetary policy in the entire world. And quantitative easing, just the money printer has just been going off because they have so many deflationary forces that they're like, we'll just throw money at it because we're not, we don't have any more land to build and we have our populations getting older. It's, we don't have to worry about inflation. So let's just print money. And so they've been doing that for the past couple of decades. And so they don't want, they want their cost of capital to be as low as possible. So people continue to invest in Japan. You can do projects in Japan, but even, so the point of all this, why we're talking about it is that for Japan to now say, we need to move our range of our 10 year bond to a higher range means that they're facing enough inflationary pressures where they see that for an extended period of time, we're going to see higher rates of inflation. Yeah. And it's another symptom of the global economy transitioning to a era of higher real yields and higher inflation because we live in a connected global economy where asset classes are, everything's correlated to some degree. Something's yeah. less, something's more, private markets, public markets. But the yield on real estate, commercial real estate's a big business. It's the hyper-local and it can get incredibly granular, but it's still connected to Japanese tenure in some way, yeah. the global economy. And the, the Japanese yen is an very important just global benchmark in currency. The dollar-yen pair is very important in Forex and just, just global economics. And I'm not an expert, but just knowing that they are all very much interconnected. And we're seeing the entire global economy shift to this higher yielding environment. And that's why I'm saying for multifamily properties, I can't, not accepting 5% cash on cash or 6% cash on cash, or even 7% cash on cash. We see a higher yielding. We need to see appropriate risk premiums because of the higher discounted rate and the higher yields in other alternative or investment that produce yielding cash flow. It's bottom line. It's a numbers thing. And I, I look at this and this could be there's some great capital and maybe another firm of where we're you know, the firm just, just doing deals. We need to do deals because we have to get fees and all that. And that's great. But if you look at it from an investor standpoint and not just, I want to invest into apartments, but I need to allocate my capital and my resources in the most efficient place possible, you need to have the appropriate yield and returns. And that's why we're driving the owners that we're talking to and brokers that we're working with of this is where pricing needs to go. And yeah. we're a buyer, but it has to be relative to the cost of capital and global economy. And maybe, so then if it was a different situation, maybe if interest rates were not, were not as high, we, you would adjust that strategy or interest rates weren't as high. We'd be able to get higher yields yeah. and with inflation, with growth, which the rate of growth is, it's pretty uncertain right now. I think we're seeing the decline in rent growth over the last couple of months, but that's correcting off of, you know, two years of incredible growth. I think we probably have some pent up demand. I think the housing market's probably going to pick back up and yeah. I don't know, 24, 25, and that'll it will include the rental market. It's uh, yeah, right now we're in a going to phase of price discovery. And I think that the, the, our compass, our sex and has to be pointed towards ca higher, higher cash flow. And looking back not too long ago, again, a yeah. couple of years ago where cash flows were and everyone's gotten used to again, 6% cash on cash. We need to be back to the 8% for longest time percent preferred returns. That was pretty standard pref hurdle mm -hmm. in private equity and multifamily. Yeah. Wouldn't do that wouldn't do a deal that didn't couldn't hit that 8% hurdle. But never yeah. didn't you want to accrue any pref. It's hard to realistically 
do a deal on the bus two years that would throw off April when we've done it deals. But to get 8% year one, it was tough. You could do it, but it's hard to project without just speculating a lot. Yeah. So I think we're reverting back to a time that would be somewhat familiar. And there's going to be folks that are stuck on the short-term IIRR investment thesis that was very profitable the last couple of years. Yeah. And who knows, but I think that's going to be tougher to do. Going yeah. Forward. What I was trying to get out of you is there's, <laughs> is I'm sure that we're adapting right yeah. to different situations and it's not a one size fits all. Maybe it doesn't, maybe it doesn't pay to always think about it like a long-term mindset, yeah. but I bet that there is a threshold beyond which like, you don't want to get too short-term, even if going's great because you could find yeah. yourself in a big yeah. problem. That's, I always think of it as musical chairs. It's like, it's fun. It's a good time. Everybody's dancing. Yeah. yeah. And then the music stops and it's someone's getting screwed. Yeah. Not everybody, but you don't want to mm-hmm. be around the music stops without a chair. Yeah. Yeah. But I wanted to mention, again, it's not hardcore multifamily related, but I thought it was worth it. Just another piece of evidence touching on the global macro economy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So again, the, the, the Bank of Japan caught markets off guard by tweaking the yield curve control policy to allow the yield in their 10-year Japanese government bond to move 50 basis points either side of its 0% target. Again, it's very loose still, yeah. 0%. And all of the experts cited are like, this isn't a big deal. Don't worry about it. But uh, the market's reaction is a little bit, yeah, because again, a little bit worse. Exactly, because they're adjusting the, to that discount rate and seeing yeah. yields go up. And, and I think it's maybe more symbolic of where things are going. And yeah. again, another just piece of evidence than anything or the, not necessarily negative. It just is, it is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Matt, where do you want to go to next? There's a really interesting working paper from the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland. And yeah. this may be one of the cases where I may suggest that there's a recent Bloomberg article that yeah. summarizes it a little bit better because the the paper itself is, is heady and abstract. <laughs> it's like even yeah. the headline, even the title is like, Disentangling rent index differences, data methods, and scope. Yeah, I think it could use a little razzle dazzle. I, I think, thought, yeah, I, I thought, how do we pick a title where people aren't going to read it? Yeah, inflation bombshell. This one weird metric is off by an entire year. Fed quietly one, develops a new inflation measurement. <laughs> this one trick that the Federal Reserve doesn't want you to know. I've been baited into the word when they use the word quietly. Like, what are they quietly doing? Oh, I need yeah, to know. Quietly, just yeah, yeah. But yes, okay. Maybe, maybe that's why they know. Yeah, yeah. So the metric, this inflation metric, is rent, of course. And uh, while this is a working paper, it has the depth and rigor really to signal that this. That means well, they're still working on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've done a lot of work already. That's for sure. And it does. And you need to do a lot of work to. Grok the some of the figures and ideas that they lay out here definitely Grok signals that it is uh, <laughs> definitely signals that it is that some smart people are really it's a, an academic style paper it's got a, they've got weights to different rate rent measurements they're referencing appendices they have six decent footnotes in the first three paragraphs so have we not uh, copied all this and dumped it in the chat GPT <laughs> not, yet, okay, not yet not right. yet I did have a thought I was like I was mostly finished with it I was like you know what. I don't have the means to determine whether like the article itself is like 100% valid, but I trust it. Stylistically, it has the look and feel of a scholarly paper and it should be noted. And I think I've noted this. I've alluded to this earlier that part of the look and feel of a scholarly paper is that it will feel almost intentionally opaque. Most of the time that's on purpose in order to get your paper published in academic journals. You need to make sure that it bounces off. It just bounces right off the understanding of 99% of the people reading it. If the peer reviewers can't understand the paper, then that's like an instant publish. 
Yeah. That's just my <laughs> just my exaggeration there. The big issue that the authors are dealing with is the difference between the CPI measurement of rent, which comes from the BLS household survey, and other me- measurements of rent like Zillow and CoreLogic that, that are a little bit more closer to market rents. We've thrown some shade on the CPI's measurement of rent growth before. Just last mm-hmm. week, I was uh, comparing it to a dinosaur fossil because of its lagging indicator. This working paper clarifies the CPI rent measurement such that it's not exactly a lagging indicator. And it's not really the product of an antiquated methodology as much as one that just may not be as sensitive to the same inputs as other rent measurements. They say that the CPI's rent measurement is fully representative of the rental housing stock in U.S. cities compared to the Zillow and CoreLogic measurements. And it draw the Zillow and CoreLogic maybe draw from a restricted number of cities. It limits themselves on the types of housing that it tracks. And there are other things and other weights that aren't applied to these kind of private rent trackers that the CPI is updating and they are like putting some real work on there. So should this really be called like in defense of CPI? Maybe it's because they are striking a very disinterested unbiased Well, it's been under attack by not just people in the housing industry, but housing has been spoken more and more in just that macroeconomic conversation. And with CPI being such an important market mover, housing making up 30% yeah. of that, it's what are we actually look, looking at? And so I, and that's a, and that's a really great point is I don't think the argument should necessarily be about like the CPI is using old or bad data. They're just, it's the real difference is, are they measuring the rent growth for all renters or are they measuring just new renters? Yeah. And, the, this and work- that's where we bump or that's where the different metrics kind of bump into each other. We're looking at market rate versus just your average, like effective rent. And honestly, like this paper almost makes an implicit argument that like, let's carve out another line in the CPI report. I don't care if you have to make a new core line graph for CPI, but the weight of rental housing. And then weight them with each other and have each be a subcomponent yeah, of, yeah. of rent. So there's ways to amend the CPI to reflect the movement of new leases rather than the existing lease, which it is lacking indicator. The stakes of this argument, which I really think that there are big ones and that they always, when I was trying to submit academic papers, they would say, what are the implications? What are the real stakes? And they're big ones. If the Zillow reading, they say, were to replace the official CPI rent measure, the 12 month headline for May, 2022 would have been Three percentage points higher for how for rental housing inflation. CPI, yeah, yeah, than than the CPI reading. These are consequential discrepancies. But that would have been interesting because it would have been would have the Federal Reserve tightened more aggressively and not been caught so flat footed if they were dealing with a more real time indicator. Yeah. And, but you're absolutely right. The implications would be huge. And what, whether we would be in a good, better, or worse spot is interesting to think about. Yeah, and I, that's another. That's like my big question is obviously the federal reserve knows and that the people that are involved there they're aware of yeah. the drawbacks and the quirks of the CPI report or at least they should be because there there still is when you see that number your instant thought isn't, oh, wait, no, I got to do that adjusting. There's a psychological effect, yeah. however mild it may be, even though Jerome Powell has referenced yeah. that that it's a lagging indicator. And question. there's consistency uh, going back and that we've always made our decisions yeah. Yeah. based on this. And although the Federal Reserve looks at like PCE sometimes more than CPI. Yeah. So my big question and then very generalized for whether it's Federal Reserve or whether it's other organizations and businesses, whatever, that are making decisions based on inflation is, are there 
specific actions that are triggered by the CPI that maybe don't need to be triggered because we should be tracking rental housing in a different way. We looked at the weight of rental housing and housing in general last week. It's like a third. Yeah, yeah, 37%. So it's huge. And the question of are we going to track new rents or existing rents is a big part of that. My thought is that the CPI's measurement of rental housing is an accurate measurement from the perspective of the cost burden of renters at any given month or period, but it does not represent the perspective of the marketplace where the decisions about prices are being played out. So for the most part, people make their decision about rent once a year. They see the pushback, they get the feeling things are too expensive. They're determining things once a year. Yeah. It'd almost be like taking what's your average spend on gasoline throughout a year throughout the year. Exactly. And they're only making it once. Yeah, exactly. Let's pay for all our gas once a year. Lock in a price. Yeah, you lock in a monthly payment. Or you have to go back and be like, okay, what have you spent on gas like every every week for every two weeks for the last year? And then we'll take an average. It's like a rolling average or something. Versus prices that are negotiated or that change every, if you're paying at the pump. Instead, if you do it every time you pay the pump, then that's a lot different. And it almost is, it's 12 times less. I wonder if you could sell, obviously, Gasoline futures absolutely exist, but like on the consumer level, I wonder if you could pay a premium to lock in. Oh, your, like a subscription price. model. That subscription, would be cool. Like you lock in. You, you already get a little discount for the, the BP card. Or, but I'm talking like locking in your price. Yeah. If gas is cheap, you could buy one. You, you could lock in, pay a premium. Do that on like at, at an ad hoc level. Just fill my tank more when it's cheaper. But yeah, yeah but that's a really a, good idea. For a year or if, yeah. I don't know. All right. If, if someone has already solved this problem, please Lay it in the comments You'd and think that explain. That, yeah, some of that could be helpful for markets, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe. But back to my thing is like, yes, okay, so you're paying for rents every month. They have a little less agency on the feedback every time you're paying rents for 11 months out of the year. And so if you're renewing, it also muddies the waters a little bit since you're not picking between two different apartment units. You're weighing the cost yeah. of moving yeah. and the yeah. landlord is weighing the cost of getting a new renter to replace you. And in as much as two apartments are able to be compared to each other, having pricing decisions based on the choice of one newly rentable apartment unit versus another newly rentable apartment unit seems like a cleaner comparison. So if you're just doing that, if apartment rent was again, like gas prices, then the CPI measurement of rents would make sense. But if you want to get to the closest, the kind of closest measure of people's decision-making of both landlords and renters. Landlords thinking, oh man, things are too expensive. Maybe you got to dial it back because I'm getting this feedback. Or new renters thinking, oh, this is too expensive. Maybe I got to go somewhere else. Then then go with new rents. And I think that that communicates inflation because we're dealing with marketplaces here and people's savings and people's impact is one way to look at it. But if you're making monetary policy decisions, I think that you need to get as close as you can to decisions. And and do you expect, Matt, the Federal Reserve to change the way that they are calculating rents in CPI that this will, I guess this may be a first step in discussing I, it. Yeah, I think it is. And this is originating from the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland. So yeah. I'm thinking at least they're in, they have the ear of someone and there is some institutional impetus to Somebody uh, to at some point this. was like, we need to look at how we're Yeah, they're funding whoever's writing this. Yeah. And to wit, <laughs> the authors of this study has actually, have actually made their own rental trackers. A couple of them in the spirit, I think, of the Gray Report National Rent Tracker. Yeah, which is really the more of the leading source. And actually, there's been some speculation, Matt, I don't know if you could add any color to this. <laughs> Federal Reserve Bank Cle- Cleveland may be kind of just following in yeah, footsteps, seeing what we're doing. You and- can read the, between the lines and 
there were a lot of lines to read between it, in that it, report. It's almost like a little too bit of a coincidence. <laughs> too cute by half. But I think, man, this is great. I like I love this position. This is just this is really just a quick short snapshot of July twenty-two to November. But and you see every single source tracking downward every for rank yeah. growth besides CPI. CPI is moving in the opposite direction. Yeah. And if you look in some of the charts that that are in that working paper, you can see a similar uh, like an echo effect almost. Yeah. And and actually that's where the where one of the better the better parts of that study is. It's on page 21 of the of the document. The report shows more really more at a glance they had these figures, figures 1 and 2. More at a glance than I can describe with piles of paragraphs. It covers the ACY marginal rent index, which is really like the most volatile one and they don't discuss it at length in the paper, but I am really interested in the comparison with Zillow CoreLogic and the CPI measurements as a basis of comparison. It's a little more interesting to see for instance how noticeably CPI lags the other rent measurements or how much the Zillow index jumped in 2021 compared to the other trackers. And in figure two, they actually directly compare, I'm sorry, it's the figure two of those of that first page. They directly compare the all tenant measurement of rent versus the new tenant measurement of rent. And they have that CPI as a baseline. CPI is supposed to be its rough equivalent, but you can see how this working papers metric of all tenants actually leads it by just a little bit by one quarter. So that was that is what they determined is their new tenant repeat rent, which is their, which is one of the working papers created metrics, is about 12 months ahead of the CPI measurement. And their all tenant, which is supposed to be the same kind of measurement as the CPI, it's one quarter ahead of the CPI. Really interesting. And I do think that you identified maybe probably the like the most significant implication of this development is there might be some movement and there might be some increasing consideration among Federal Reserve members that, that we got to stop. We got to stop looking at this old rent stuff. Yeah. But that's that's just my opinion. I think it's definitely in the conversation and it's uh, a selfish fact. Yeah, I keep, keep uh, running into this. Seventy one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Matt. Let's get into this report from Fannie Mae. Fannie Mae, what's going on over there, Fannie Mae? So the Fannie Mae, and you can click their multifamily market commentary. Every month in this commentary, they pick a different a different development, a different aspect of the multifamily market. Sometimes it's a general overview, but a lot of times, like one month, they did construction and renovation. But this month in their commentary, and there's a link to the PDF in that in the link that we'll provide. Uh, this month, they cover they cover some kind of gen- demographic shifts. And honestly, when I think about the long-term prospects of the housing market and really of housing in general, I keep coming back to this idea that we are on the verge of some enormous demographic shifts. And yeah, this shift isn't going to be felt and is not being felt like someone flipped a switch, but even gradual changes are going to have a big impact, especially when we're talking about baby boomers. In the 10-year time span, again, these are talking about baby boomers, but in the 10-year time span they cover, I've been thinking a lot about shifting numbers of the 18 to 34 cohort. Around the end of this decade, we could see a dip in apartment demand correlated with lower birth rates during the Great Recession. This possibility has been noted in some long-term projections. I haven't seen some, but it's been included in a number of different factors that are projecting what property values or the multifamily market or housing demand 
or really the last time I heard it mentioned was like colleges are yeah. getting a little bit scared of what's going to happen in eight years when all of these kind of recession era people are coming of age and demand really dropped off. But I think that could similarly, that's the same kind of age demographic, maybe four years younger, whatever. As apartment demand, I think the jury is definitely still out on that. And it may be a marginal difference, if any. Because I was looking at birth rates, and it doesn't seem like there is a clear, dramatic drop off. Well, wasn't the there a, kind of a change in that a story recently mm-hmm. where actually birth rates like surprise to the upside? Yeah. So for during the pandemic, there, yeah, there was a little bit more of a, of an increase in more than people predicted. So there's a depending on how you slice it, yeah, things could go differently. But it definitely is something I'm thinking about about how any of the millennial cohort is bigger than than Gen Z and the following and that following cohort after Gen Z, that may be a little bit smaller still. So we're still dealing with a little bit of a mystery and a little bit of an echo, the reverberations of the baby boomer generation. I said, you know, any any change related to baby boomers are almost always going to be more impactful than than piddling Gen Zs or Gen Ys or maybe even Gen Xs, which... They always, get left, they, they always get left out. I, that's why I love them the most. Yeah, yeah, they're, <laughs> yeah, they're just doing their thing. Yeah, oh, man. I just wanted to return to Baby Boomer. The baby, what the point is that they're making in this commentary is the implications of growing numbers of baby boomers, specifically grower, a growing population of over 75, which is going to be different in every state. And they talk about how like in some places, especially in Florida, some markets in Florida, like in Sarasota, are significantly higher proportion and higher high proportion now, higher proportion in 10 years of 75 and over. Yeah. Now I've heard that like snowbirds, they come down and then they go back for their waning years. But um, at some point, at some point, yeah. then you have to go back because you need to be closer to family. Yeah. So um, you're, yeah, like kind of support and systems. just moving around a lot. But yeah, yeah it's going to be the, over the next 10 to 15 years, it's going to be a dramatic change just to be yeah, demographics and the economy in so many different ways from wealth transfers from one generation to the other to baby boomers selling small mm-hmm. businesses or large businesses to moving to retirement or back home to be with family to just less people with the largest demographic with second largest now to millennials just, mm-hmm. if they're not already out of the workforce, which we already yeah. saw an acceleration of yeah. that in COVID, but there's going to be a lot more exiting the workforce over the next couple of years. Well, and I think too, the implication they directly point to is senior housing, whether it's like a skilled nursing facility where it's really plugged in as a nursing yep. home or it is is gradations yeah, of, of those lot, communities. Yeah, a lot of different options, whether it's just 55 up and but you that's know, you know no that's something but that's something I've really been thinking of too is maybe apartment main is gonna go down, but it's almost certain that senior housing demand or, or demand from or demand from senior citizens at apartments. Yeah. And that is true. But the Fannie Mae article really specifically singled out senior, senior housing as this area where we're almost certainly going to see more demand. And it's what's interesting is I've heard this story for the past really like 20 years. It's like it's coming. tsunami. And then like it hadn't come with a strength. I think there's aging in place. I think that baby boomers are eternally youthful. They're babies. <laughs> They're always babies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like the. Yeah, exactly. So there's a cultural there was a cultural shift. I think that coincided with the aging of baby boomers that maybe are a little more independent than previous generations. But I still think senior housing is really as a really there was some overbuilding of senior housing kind of anticipation and it was like they weren't filling up because oh interesting but it's like the availability is there and so i think it's going to have i think senior housing could be one of the stronger performers of the next 10 15 years for sure yeah all right matt got one more report for from rent.com i snuck in a little rent report 
Got that's a Christmas gift. <laughs> Christmas comes early on the Gray Report right. for another rent report. Matt, take this away. <laughs> Not necessarily because we have to cover every single rent report, but I did want to throw in. We mentioned our national rent report tracker. And I will say a couple of admissions that I want to foreground here about the rent.com report. Number one, it's recently dawned on me that the company, this that rent.com, styles itself as rent, as rent dot. Like it spells it capital R-E-N-T with the period. Interesting. Am I supposed to just call it rent? Am I supposed to call it rent dot? I'm not going to call it rent dot. I'm going to call it rent.com. Yeah, it's like 90, late 90s dot com bubble. Yeah, I, I just... All right. Chewy.com. I'm a little confused. Like just, <laughs> just a little confused. Well, that's there all. aren't as many websites that we refer to as dot coms anymore. Yeah, I'm I know. Trying to, I'm trying to think. I was, talking, I was talking just yesterday about how the early 2000s trend was to eliminate vowels in the names of mm. your tech companies. But I'll stop wasting everyone's time there. The top line numbers that you may have seen just now, the year-over-year rent growth is at 7.45%. And month-over-month rent growth is at positive 1.23 for November, an uptick compared to the previous two months of negative growth. A new feature of this report looks at how many markets showed positive growth for both month-over-month and year-over-year. For November, for yeah, for the month of November, only 39.5% of markets showed positive growth. And for year-over-year growth, a full 88.37% of markets showed positive yearly growth. Maybe last week you asked, are these guys just cherry-picking rent reports that highlight the strength mm. of Midwestern multifamily markets? Which and, is the reality. It's... Yeah, and maybe this week I'll look at the corroborate. We've got corroborating evidence. Rent.com has Indianapolis at number three for rent growth, 50, 15.8%, followed by Cleveland at 14.9%. And Cincinnati is at number 10, 9.2%. The And they also have the some of the markets with the lowest amount of growth. And Midwest is not doesn't have that big of a presence in that in the shrinking markets. Nope. It's interesting to note that in terms of the month over month declines, Oklahoma City, which is at number two for yearly rent growth, it's experiencing a little bit more of a monthly mm. decline. But that's something that rent.com has, has consistently reported on that's not included in other reports, which is that Oklahoma City is a very strong multifamily market as far as their, their reporting is concerned. A really, re- really interesting development. Another another underline to the strength of the, of the Midwest and even places like Raleigh, North Carolina, that's consistently a strong market. Oh, yeah. But it's continuing to perform. So it's not the Sunbelt's going away anytime soon. No, but. and that plays into that baby boomer story people move into a little bit warmer weather. If you have one winter, we're going to get ready to have a bomb cyclone or whatever. Yeah. It might be nicer in Florida during this time of year. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Fr- flash freezing. That's a that's another term flash that we're going to have to deal like freezing. two yeah. days. Any uh, fun holiday plans, Matt? No, but I have been yeah, going out, hanging out with family. I'm looking forward to... Yeah, just to spend spending time with with my brothers and sisters and all their kids, and I'm probably losing my mind a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I, my parents have a, a nice sledding hill, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna ice the heck out of that thing. A so. water main broke by my house. Oh yeah, uh, yesterday last night. I was wa- <laughs> we were driving down, and there's yeah. just water flowing down this hill. Oh man, the street was closed. To, yeah, on Kessler. Yikes. Oh man. Yeah. So, I yeah. Our neighbor had that happen a couple weeks ago, and fun we stuff. Yeah. If you're not subscribed to the Gray Capital YouTube channel, <laughs> you need to be. Whether it's on YouTube or you're getting our podcast, we appreciate it. If you're an accredited investor looking to allocate capital with a team with a little bit of experience and a track record in multifamily apartments, hop on over to Gray.Fund. 
Love to have a conversation with you. We can learn a little bit more about what we do. We'd love to learn about you and what you're doing as well. So from all the folks here at Great Capital, the Great Report, Matt and myself wishing everyone happy holidays, happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, Kwanzaa, whatever you celebrate. Hoping you have a good time with family, friends, good tidings to all, peace and love on earth and silent night. All right. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. Catch you on the Great Report next time. 